The Biden administration used an advanced missile to bring down a slow-moving, high-altitude Chinese balloon. Meanwhile, Biden's Republican critics in Congress denounced the balloon's presence in the United States as a, quote, show of force, close quote, by the Chinese government and demanded an even more hyper-aggressive response from the administration. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we are talking once again with Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He was the founding director of the Confucius Institute at the university. He is also an author, a journalist, and an organizer and activist with the peace organization, Pivot to Peace. Dr. Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here, Brian. Well, this was the uh, the shot against the balloon heard round the world, Dr. Hammond. I want to start with a CNN news clip, which includes commentary from some of Biden's Republican critics in Congress. Let's start with that, and then I'll get your comments. Bit by tattered bit, salvage teams have pulled the remnants of the Chinese high-altitude balloon out of the Atlantic Ocean, learning its secrets now just a matter of time. The first recovered parts already at Quantico for FBI analysis. CNN has reviewed parts of an Air Force report from last April that showed the trajectory of one high-altitude balloon that flew around the world in 2019 during the Trump administration. According to the report, called People's Republic of China High-Altitude Balloons, the balloon was launched and controlled by China as it drifted near Hawaii and over southern Florida at 65,000 feet. But it's unclear when the U.S. first became aware of the 2019 balloon or its intent. A House Armed Services Committee hearing on the threat China poses to U.S. national security focused on this balloon. Make no mistake, that balloon was intentionally launched as a calculated show of force. We have to stop being naive about the threat we face from China. The commander of Northern Command in NORAD, General Glenn Van Herc, acknowledged there was an awareness gap that allowed three balloons to overfly parts of the United States during the Trump administration. China's initial apology for this latest incident they claimed was a weather balloon has turned into indignation. China says the balloon debris doesn't belong to the U.S. and they want it back. Mm, What I can say is that this airship belongs to China and not the United States. Ken... Congressperson Rogers, make no mistake about it. This was a calculated show of force by China. I mean, here's a slow moving balloon that the U.S. used uh, a Sidewinder missile produced by Raytheon. I think it cost $400,000 each to shoot down the balloon. Somehow the balloon wasn't able to offer a lot of sort of deceptive moves to get away from the missile. But this is the show of force, a calculated show of force. I mean, what a joke. Well, indeed, this is a situation that it's not just it would be funny if it wasn't so dangerous. It's still funny, even though it's so dangerous. It's just absurd. The idea that this balloon 
it's not a maneuverable balloon. They've tried to portray it as such because like any balloon, if you float it up and down at different altitudes, it'll be moved by different streams, different currents of air. But it's hardly, you know, something that they're guiding and directing and focusing in on some particular target. This balloon, if you see the track that has been published for it, comes up across the Pacific, across a little bit of Alaska, down through Western Canada, and then tracks down across the Eastern United States till it goes off the uh, South Carolina coast, where thank goodness, I feel so much safer. It was finally shot down. It was just, you know, such a menace, 65,000 feet up there in the sky. But that track exactly follows the course of the high altitude jet stream that brought all that icy weather to New England last week. So the idea that this was anything other than, you know, a weather balloon, other than a pretty routine activity, thousands of these are launched every year by countries all over the world, including the United States. You know, and yes, that's out gathering information like the temperature and the air pressure and the movement of cloud patterns and things like that. You know, it's just it's kind of hilarious that this got blown up, not just the balloon, literally, but the whole story into this major incident. You know, I mean, just the ease of this, the disproportion of the American response, launching this multi-million dollar aircraft, shooting it down with, as you say, a $400,000 missile and acting as if this is some heroic defense against almost like a threatened invasion. Do they think that these balloons are somehow going to take over? Plus, the whole premise of this, that this was some kind of spy balloon is undermined by both by the fact that the United States operates a massive espionage and surveillance program directed against China, and by the fact that there's no indication whatsoever that it had any particular targets in mind. Yes, it happened across part of Montana, and we were all happy to learn that that's where you know so many important missiles are. I'm sure the people in Montana feel much safer now. The whole thing has just been so out of proportion and so so absurd it's hard to take it seriously. Although, of course, the way that it was responded to is yet another indication of the deep antagonism, the deep hostility felt by American elites and politicians and the military directed against China. Yeah, indeed. I mean, here's the F-22 Raptor. This is how the Air Force talks about the F-22 Raptor. And that was the plane that fired the missile. That, By the way, the F-22 Raptor hasn't been used in combat until now, this combat mission for almost a decade. It was used in Syria, again, in illegal operation because, of course, the U.S. intervened in Syria, not at the invitation of the Syrian government, but against its demands and wishes and carried out many, many bombings in Syria. But here's what the, how the Pentagon describes the F-22. The F-22 Raptor is a combination of stealth Super cruise maneuverability and integrated avionics coupled with improved supportability. It's a critical component, Ken, of the Global Strike Task Force designed to project air dominance. And they did it. They actually projected real air dominance when they took down this balloon. <laughs> but Ken, let's assume without conceding that the U.S. is correct, that this is in fact an intelligence balloon, that it's as part of a surveillance operation. Let's just assume that for a second. I want to let people know 
that according to an article in Politico that came out in July 2022, the U.S. military is working on using high-altitude balloons to monitor China and Russia. Okay, there's the headline. It's from Politico, July 22. The balloons, according to this article, are capable of flying up to 90,000 feet, meaning beyond where people can see them, and that they would reportedly become part of the country's extensive surveillance network for tracking hypersonic weapons. The development comes amid international concern that Russia and China are ahead of the United States in hypersonic missile technology. According to budget documents outlined by this outlet, the U.S. Department of Defense has signaled its intention to move the technology beyond the scientific community to various military services. Anyway, Ken, if this is a a spy balloon, it would indicate, at least from this political article, that the U.S. is doing exactly the same thing. In other words, it wouldn't be that shocking. Well, I think that certainly that's the case. And and I have to say yet again that it's good to know that the United States is trying to close the balloon gap. Yes. Because clearly if the Chinese balloon was in fact, which I don't think it was, but let's say an espionage balloon, then we're not only worried about competition in the hypersonic weapons, but also apparently in subsonic weapons like balloons. So now if we're going to be able to develop this, this really, of course, is a much more threatening looking balloon. And I think that's really important because, you know, when we saw pictures of the Chinese balloon, it did kind of look like it was just floating along. And that's not really very menacing. And I think so. It's better that our balloon is going to look much more maneuverable and much more aggressive and assertive. Yeah, it's a much stronger balloon. No question about that. It makes a real statement. (laughs) Ken, I want to go to President Biden's State of the Union address. Again, it's incumbent now on all political leaders that they have to denounce China. Let's listen to what President Biden said. This is a couple days after he ordered the shoot down of the Chinese balloon. But make no mistake about it. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, We will act to protect our country, and we did. Look, let's be clear. Winning the competition should unite all of us. We face serious challenges across the world. But in the past two years, democracies have become stronger, not weaker. Autocracy has grown weaker, not stronger. Name me a world leader who changed places with Xi Jinping. Name me one. Name me one. Wow. I mean, I think a lot of leaders would be perfectly happy to be the leaders of the People's Republic of China. <laughs> it's the second biggest economy. But the the grotesque character of the rhetoric coming from the Biden administration, from Biden himself, from Republican Congress people who are denouncing Biden for not being aggressive enough. And then this kind of ridiculing Xi Jinping, name me one leader, one leader anywhere in the world who would rather be Xi Jinping than the leader of their own country, as if China is a complete and utter failure. I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric that is a precursor to more animus, more hatred, more fear, more hostility, again, preparing the American public for conflict. And, you know, right before the Iraq war, the same kind of demonizing rhetoric was directed against Saddam Hussein. And then 
Afterwards, we learned, oh, you know, those of us who are part of the anti-war organization's mass movement already knew that the U.S. was lying about weapons of mass destruction. But eventually everybody learned that the U.S. campaign against Saddam was based on lies. And then there were lies against the government in Libya in order to justify the U.S. bombing campaign that destroyed Libya. Before the Iraq war, there was the bombing campaign against Yugoslavia. All of these campaigns have this one element that's so powerful, which is demonizing the target, creating hatred, usually about a leader, Milosevic in Yugoslavia, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Gaddafi in Libya, Putin in Russia, Xi Jinping in China. And if you went back and looked at the last 30 years, some of them were communists, some of them were anti-communists, some of them were pan-Arabists, some of them were just bourgeois nationalists. It actually doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters is, has the U.S. foreign and military policy establishment decided that the U.S. government is going to take these countries down, these governments down, these individuals down, and thus the demonization? And now we see it against Xi Jinping in the State of the Union addressed by President Joe Biden. Yes, that's a very aggressive tone by President Biden. And I think that that reflects the intensity of the animosity that is felt by, you know, figures on both sides of the aisle in Congress and, and in the White House and in the Pentagon and, and, you know, in corporate media and all that. I think that, you know, this situation in, in many ways, as we've been saying, it's, it's so absurd, it's almost comical. But in fact, this is a very dangerous moment. This is a time when, once again, we're being led down the path towards aggressive hostility, possibly warfare with China. You know, there's the old saw about how those who, you know, don't remember their history are condemned to repeat it. And for some reason, many people in the country, including people, some people on the left, seem to embrace many aspects of this demonization of China. But it's a very, very dangerous approach. It's a very dangerous policy. It's been going on since the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, and now in the Biden administration. And it's only, if anything, it's only intensifying. The very idea that our national political leaders feel that they can put out a message as absurd as this about this balloon from China. And that that's going to have traction. That's going to have credibility. And sadly, because it has been such a relentless campaign, that's probably true to at least some degree. Although we should also bear in mind that many people in the United States remain quite skeptical of what the government says. Even pretty mainstream media, such as I happened to catch the opening of last week's Saturday Night Live, which did a complete send-up of the shooting down of the balloon and the absurdity of the situation and the American response. So, you know, it is a moment where there are, there are some cracks in that facade of hostility. And that's what those of us who want to work for peace and want to work for you know socialist change in the future that's the sort of things that we have to be aware of and try to advance with but it's a it is a very dangerous time and biden really sounded he sounded reckless he sounded almost out of control and that challenging that you know name me one leader what it evoked for me was thinking all the way back to Joe McCarthy and, you know, I have in my hand a list of communists in the State Department and things like that. It's that same almost hysterical loss of reason, loss of perspective of putting things into any kind of pragmatic, realistic situation or consciousness. And that reflects the deep, deep anxiety, the deep fear 
on the part of American elites about China's rise, China's reemergence in the world. They see it as a zero-sum game. China's gain has to be America's loss. It's certainly not a loss for the American people, but it may well be a loss for the American elites, for the corporations and the politicians and the military. And so they feel threatened by it. And they feel threatened by even something as mundane as the passage of a, of a weather balloon or something like that. It's a, it's a very, very dangerous and fraught moment. Indeed. You know, we talked with you, Ken, and highlighted the reckless provocation committed by Nancy Pelosi when she went to Taiwan back in August 2022. She's no longer the leading voice within the Democratic Party within the House of Representatives. That's now Hakeem Jeffries. Kevin McCarthy is now the Speaker of the House, and because the Republicans have narrow control over the House. Blinken was about to go to China when this high-altitude balloon was seen aloft over Montana. And so the Biden administration canceled those talks. And those talks, at least according to the media, were designed to sort of slow down the you know, increasingly tense character of U.S.-China relations. They were trying to sort of press the reset button at least a little bit. In other words, to tamp the brakes in terms of this hyper-aggressive rhetoric. But then the balloon was spotted, and so Biden did cancel Blinken's trip. And now there's a question about whether that trip will even take place. And now we hear the message that Kevin McCarthy, the new Speaker of the House, might also be going to Taiwan, in which case the Chinese won't, you know, they won't have Blinken come back right away because they won't think, the Chinese won't think, nor should they think, that this is Democrats and Republicans maneuvering against each other for position within the body politic here in the United States. They're going to consider this the U.S. government because Speaker of the House is third in succession, coming just months after his Democratic rival, Nancy Pelosi, made the same trip to Taiwan. Many people in Taiwan were so offended, they were hoping the Chinese government would sort of do something to Nancy Pelosi's plane, like, not let it land or something like that. But the Chinese government, as you and I have talked about, took a very cautious attitude. But again, at a certain point, this level of provocation will have to be responded to with some more considerable sort of force or measures by the Chinese government. Otherwise, it'll look like the Chinese government, which asserts that Taiwan is indeed part of China, which of course it is, that the U.S. can just do whatever it wants in regard to Taiwan. So the provocations at a certain point become a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of forcing China to do something that's more aggressive. And then that in turn will be used by the U.S. as a pretext for the next countermeasure against China. This is what's called in sort of popular vernacular, climbing the escalation ladder. And again, it's 100% unnecessary. Nothing's happening between Taiwan and China that would warrant like the Speaker of the House, either a Democrat or Republican, making these routine visits now, asserting, in fact, that by virtue of the trip, that China doesn't have sovereignty over Taiwan. Again, reckless, reckless behavior on the part of U.S. government officials. Well, if Biden and the Pentagon and other politicians want to portray the floating of this balloon across the United States as a violation of sovereignty. These visits by American political leaders to Taiwan uh, 
are a gross violation of China's sovereignty. I think that China has exercised great restraint in its response to these provocations. And that can hardly be said of the United States, certainly in this instance. You know, the gross overreaction on the part of the United States to this balloon is such a stark contrast to China's conduct. China has consistently maintained its position that the Taiwan issue comes down from history. It's a problem for the Chinese people on both sides of the strait. They'll solve it in their own way, in their own time. They don't want any outside interference. And yet the United States continues again and again and again to directly and blatantly interfere to ship weapons, to violate the terms of the various statements that have been issued over the years articulating the relationship, to send these top-level politicians to engage in these propaganda activities, which completely undermine the credibility of other statements by American leaders. When Joe Biden talked with Xi Jinping in a video conference late last year when they exchanged views on the sidelines in Bali, recently, you know, he makes these statements, oh, we'll always respect the one China policy. We will always, you know, adhere to our commitments and all this. And then they turn around and do the exact opposite. So there's layers and layers here. There's the hypocrisy of the American positions. There's the aggressive rhetoric. There's the overreaction to incidents like this balloon. The gap between any kind of rational approach to this relationship and the conduct of the American government is pretty stunning. Last week, the same House of Representatives passed a resolution condemning socialism. Congress denounces socialism in all its forms, wow, and opposes the implementation of socialist policies in the United States of America. You know, this is like Trump when he had that State of the Union address, basically launching his 2020 campaign, where he said, the United States will never be a socialist country. And then all of the members of Congress, including Pelosi and the Democratic leadership, you know, rose to their feet, joining in this great ovation against socialism. And here we have, in the last week, the resolution says, many of the greatest crimes in history, Ken, were committed by socialist ideologues. And then goes on to mention the great criminals, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro, Pol Pot, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un, Daniel Ortega, Hugo Chavez, Nicolas Maduro. The majority of the Democrats voted for this resolution. So, you know, just a reminder to everybody, socialism in all of its forms, well, you know, Helen Keller, socialist, Albert Einstein, socialist, Martin Luther King Jr., socialist, of course, Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, the great labor leaders and leaders in the peace movement in the United States, always, almost always socialists. But we have this thing that's going on, Ken, which conflates Socialism, communism, autocracies, so-called in the case of China, or they say China and Russia. And the American government is both victimized and threatened by these socialists on the march. Here we are 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And conflating that with China's march for world domination, as it's presented to the people in the United States and in Congress and in the media. 
It's this tried and true tactic of using anti-communism as the beacon call for war, for aggression with those who are fighting for social justice. And the fact that it's bipartisan, the fact that 109 Democrats joined with all of the Republicans in issuing this resolution, it also says, and the, one of the co-authors of the resolution makes the point, this is from Congresswoman Salazar from Florida. She said about the resolution, it would ensure that the United States commits to never begin or normalize the implementation of socialist policies. So if you can't normalize relations or normalize relations with governments that are socialist, it means you can never have normal, that is, peaceful relations. It actually underscores the need for endless war against those who the American government has targeted. Well, I think this resolution was a, a fascinating moment. Certainly, clearly, the redeployment of old tropes about socialism and you know the red menace and all this. But I think that it's interesting that it comes at a time when socialism, you know, is back in the political conversation in the United States. This is a time when all over the country, especially among younger people who aren't, you know, sort of tainted and don't have to carry the the intellectual baggage of all those decades of anti-communism as a kind of secular religion in American politics. It's a time when, you know, people are talking about socialism. There are campus organizations springing up at universities across the country, students for social socialism, socialist action groups, things like that. You know, I think that there's been a significant re-engagement or re-emergence of the ideas of socialism that are gaining some traction in America. And of course, that's exactly what these politicians fear, the idea that there could ever be any alternative. You know, there's the saying that goes around these days, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. But that's actually getting to be less and less true. More and more young people, especially, are once again imagining that there may really be alternatives. There may really be other ways of organizing the economy, of organizing society that prioritize paying attention to human needs, that prioritize, you know, having those who produce wealth share in the decision-making about how it's distributed and allocated and the uses to which it is put, rather than having the wealth generated by, you know, billions of workers around the world go into the hands of a tiny elite who put it to their own uses, a lot of which is through war and policing and things designed to oppress the very people who are generating the wealth that they're enjoying. So, yeah, socialism you know, I can understand that all these members of Congress are a little frightened of it and perhaps a little anxious about it because a fundamental change in the system would certainly uh, lead to consequences that would not be favorable to their power, their privileges, the perks that they enjoy. On a broader level, that's the fear that drives the American elites in their hostility to people all over the world, not just China. China is one of the biggest targets, but but certainly Russia, even India, Brazil now, now that Lula is back in power there. Any country that doesn't subordinate itself to the interests of American capital becomes a target for American foreign policy. It doesn't matter 
even if it's a socialist country itself. Russia is certainly not a socialist country, and yet it defies American capital. And so it has to be demonized and punished, you know, in ways that countries like Saudi Arabia, which certainly don't embody anything like what we purport to have as values in this country, are warmly embraced and flooded with money and aid and weapons and all this. So it's really very clear what underpins American policy. And so Congress passing this resolution, this whole kerfuffle with the balloon, these are stark demonstrations of the fundamental truths of American politics at this point, which is the hostility, the fear, the aggression that's going to be directed towards anyone around the world that defies American hegemony. And part of the plan, I believe, with the right wing in Congress, I mean, of course, the Republican Party, significant parts of the Democratic Party, certainly the political leaders who identify with the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, it's also designed, what they're trying to do right now is cut Social Security. They're trying to cut Medicare. They're trying to deny poor people access to health care services through Medicaid. This is part of their agenda. So if they can label the Democrats as being, quote, socialists, and then the Democrats weakly, you know, endorsing and supporting this ridiculous resolution condemning socialism, and then they can conflate social programs like unemployment insurance, like Medicaid, like Medicare, like any sort of programs that are designed to actually help working class folks or poor people in America with, quote, socialism. That also becomes an ideological tool against working class communities here in the United States. And again, it's part of the way that the reactionaries throw sand in the eyes of progressive people or people who may not be progressive in a political sense, but are, you know, relying on social service programs that are designed to help working class people that were the consequence of the earlier struggles of the labor movement or the civil rights movement. Those struggles that expanded democracy, not simply political democracy, but economic and social democracy for some degree of social justice as limited as it is, those programs are now on the chopping block. So these right-wing reactionaries are like, that's socialism. That's a consequence of socialism. Well, in one sense, yes, because many parts of the civil rights movement and labor movement were indeed socialists, but these are not socialist programs. They're the modest concessions and reforms won by the working class in its fight for social justice from the capitalists. And those are the programs that the right wing wants to take away. So they'd rather give the money to F-22s or Sidewinder missiles or U.S. military bases. By the way, Ken, the Biden administration also announced that the U.S. is increasing military base presence in the Philippines by almost double. That can be for nothing other than war. So my point is that when we're talking to people about what these issues really mean, it's fighting a rich man's war against progressive, independent, or socialist governments. It's spending our tax dollars to give to Raytheon, to give to Lockheed Martin, to give to the war contractors for endless war, which will be basically fought by working class people against other working class people in faraway lands, and all of it done in the name of, quote, defending us from communism or against China. Anyway, people have to understand what's really going on with this war drive because it's conflated with a war at home against working class people and a war abroad. 
Yes, I think that, you know, I mentioned earlier the line about, you know, if you forget your history, you're condemned to repeat it. And I think that that hearing something like this resolution about socialism should remind us, you know, should once again bring to our awareness, you know, some of the patterns we've seen in American history itself. You know, these guys want to go back to, you know, here we are in the 2020s. What they want to go back to is the roaring 20s of the 20th century, you know, which was a period of freewheeling capitalism that speculation ran wild. And what that took us directly to was the Great Depression that lasted for more than a decade and saw, you know, millions and millions of Americans out of work and destroyed the livelihoods of of working people across the country. And, you know, the reforms, the measures that were taken at that time, some of which were very clearly aimed at thwarting deeper changes, at blocking true revolutionary change, but which nonetheless created a more progressive environment, a slightly more egalitarian system in the United States. Those got undermined again after the 1960s. In the 1970s, the rise of neoliberalism And that put us once again on a path that by the late 90s and certainly by 2008 saw us again go through a major economic crisis that devastated the lives of millions of working people. And now they think, oh, well, you know, it's been long enough. People have forgotten about that. And they want to go through another cycle of that. You know, this idea that they love the so-called business cycle as if it's some naturally occurring thing is really brought about by the actions of capital, by the actions of corporations, by the actions of the rich and powerful who want to draw resources to themselves. And they generate these crises that devastate working people. And now they're trying to position themselves to do it all over again. So I think I think you're quite right. This is not just a crisis of international relations. It's not just a crisis that sees the United States becoming this, this hostile, aggressive force against people around the world or entering into a new phase of hostility and aggression. But it's one that's also directed very much against the interests of ordinary working people in the United States. We're not going to be the ones to benefit from the changes that they want to make. We're not going to be the ones to benefit when social security is privatized. We're not going to be the ones to benefit when health coverage is further privatized and when we get the kind of response that we saw to the pandemic where a million Americans died needlessly. You know, that's not in our interest. The programs that these elites are pushing, (laughs) they're going to be devastating for us all over again. But invoking this boogeyman of socialism on this gross bipartisan level. This is exactly part of that kind of campaigning. This coming March 19th is the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the shock and awe invasion. Those of us in the Answer Coalition and many other anti-war coalitions are going to be marching in Washington, D.C. at the White House on Saturday, March 18th. I hope people can join us there. We're making the point that the war drive that the U.S. was engaged in after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the so-called end of the Cold War or the end of the so-called Cold War, the U.S. went to war against Yugoslavia, then it invaded Afghanistan, it invaded Iraq, it went to war against Libya, it tried to overthrow the government in Syria, that this is one big endless war drive and the Pentagon and American capitalism are the real source of the war drive. And it's about empire, it's about dominance, it's about the fact that war is good business for American capitalism or some parts of it. And then you think about the war in Ukraine, and we're gonna be talking about this war in Ukraine as a proxy war that the US is waging with Russia and as part of the endless US war drive. 
But then when you think about the fact that the U.S. is not only confronting Russia, but also preparing for major power conflict with China, and Russia and China have retained can their basic alliance in spite of the pressure that came about with the Russian decision to intervene in Ukraine a year ago, a year ago this month. When you look at the big landscape here and you see the U.S. is not stepping back from war, the U.S. is escalating war, that it's not simply in response to Russia and Ukraine. When you think about big picture Iraq, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Libya, I mean, it's really a, where U.S. capitalism is at this stage of its development. It wasn't always this way. It wasn't always that U.S. capitalism had to be endlessly at war. But that's where it is right now. And one of the things that I think is particularly dangerous is that if people think this is just rhetoric or even the shoot down of the balloon, which we can make fun of, and you and I have both done it, as you mentioned, Saturday Night Live, pillaring it, it's actually got a humorous element to it. But we are on the path towards war. And people would think like, no, there's not really going to be a war with China because China's too big. China and Russia have nuclear weapons. But I think that's Pollyannish. You can see that things can happen, including like a balloon that goes off course or becomes suddenly like the point of conflict at the moment that the Secretary of State was going to China to presumably you know, put the brakes on the escalating crisis, a simple thing like a balloon showing up creates a whole new political environment. And instead of negotiations, the rhetoric escalates. And instead of Blinken going and having some diplomatic head-to-head -head with his counterpart in Beijing, you have Kevin McCarthy on his way to Taiwan. You can see how the sequence of events can easily spin out of control and that's why I believe that the points that we're making here in our discussions and the points we're making on this show, they have to be taken seriously. This is real. Very much so. I think that we're in a time of great danger. We're in a time where people need to pay close attention to what's happening. These are times in which, you know, deep, Deep structural changes are taking place in the world. China is not the only uh, focus of all this, but China is a very, very important component of this. China's achievements, its ongoing efforts to build a different kind of society, a different kind of economic order, trying to build its own form of socialism. These are new developments in the world. You know, when the United States could be globally hegemonic and there weren't really other forces that were a significant challenge, you know, especially in the wake of the end of the Cold War, there was that whole end of history nonsense for a while. But for a while, I think the Americans convinced themselves, the elites convinced themselves that they were going to be able to preside over a world in which capital would have sort of free range everywhere. And that has proven not to be the case. And it is increasingly the case that capital is challenged by places that simply don't want to be subordinated to it or by places like China that present significant alternatives to it. And so it is a, you know, there is a kind of existential crisis approaching for capitalism and for imperialism. And in the face of that, the desperation and the hysteria of these elites and the incredible military power that they control constitutes a real threat, a real risk, a menace to the livelihoods, the futures, the very survival of people around the world, including the American people 
and I think that that's something that we all need to take very seriously. And I hope people will, uh, at least uh, as one step in that, you know, be happy to take to the streets in March, March 18th, to express the need for peace and the need for reorganization and a reprioritization of politics here in the United States, as well as in our relations with other countries. Ken, you and I have been working together on on a couple book projects. One is uh, we did uh, almost nine hours of interviews about China's foreign policy from 1949. That's going to be coming out in book form soon. We worked together on another book, the title of which is China's Quest for a Socialist Future. And you are the principal author of that book, and that's going to be out very, very soon. So we're looking forward to it. But the reason I want to mention those books, but the one that's coming out soon, China's Quest for a Socialist Future, is that in your documentation, in your scholarship, and in this book, we go through or you go through the different stages of China's evolution since the 1949 revolution. And it's nothing short of remarkable, the progress that China actually has made under the leadership of the Communist Party, which doesn't mean you can't have criticisms of China or you have to be a camp follower of the Chinese Communist Party. Nothing like that is necessary. You and I are both independent socialist voices, but you also can see, and you well document in this new book that's coming out, how China's made this remarkable progress. China's life expectancy now is higher than the United States. And China's life expectancy, I think, at the time of the revolution in 1949 was something like 36 years old or 40 years old. I mean, some very low number. China has 1.4 billion people. So feeding people, feeding one-fifth of the human race every day, that's a big job, especially in a developing country that has suffered the scourge of underdevelopment or the legacy of imposed underdevelopment from colonial powers. China's graduating young people from, you know, in science and technology and math courses far beyond what the U.S. is producing. I mean, like the social achievements are huge. China's constructing new technologies, new rapid transit, green cities, cities that are designed for their ecological sustainability. I mean, all of this is happening under the government of the Chinese Communist Party. So from an objective point of view, like using an objective criteria, you have to say, well, look, China has made these remarkable accomplishments in a government led by the Communist Party. But if one listens to the U.S. House of Representatives in its majority, including the majority of Democrats, you would only come to the conclusion that China is nothing other than an utter failure and a criminal regime imposed on the people of China who are suffering through this sort of totalitarian nightmare. So the contrast between the presentation of the American capitalist politicians and elites and the reality of China couldn't be more striking. And it would seem to me that this is the thing the American people are not getting because if they're getting their news from the mainstream media, they don't know about this. Thus, the importance of this new book written by you and the other information that's coming out. But let's just, as we get sort of towards the end, let's just talk again for people who may be listening to this show for the very first time. And some people listen regularly, but a lot of people are listening the first time. The achievements in China cannot be overstated. 
Well, I certainly agree. You know, I think that one of the most dangerous things in our present moment, and it's hardly new right now, is the lack of information that most people in the United States have access to concerning China. Everything they hear about China, the vast majority of people here in, in the United States and in the West in general, almost everything they hear about China is filtered through the corporate media. It's filtered through elite institutions of one kind or another, or it comes out of the mouths of politicians who have their own agendas. Very few people in, in America or the West more broadly read or speak Chinese. And so the ability to have any kind of direct knowledge or awareness of China and of what the realities of life there are like is very minimal here. And I think it's sadly all too easy for people to fall into an acceptance of this idea that China is some sort of bleak landscape of oppression and this heavy surveillance society and a place where there's no freedom of expression. And the realities of life in China are quite in contrast to that. And simple things like the experience of how China handled the 2008 world financial crisis by you know, taking care of its people, not simply generating vast unemployment and letting folks fend for themselves and people losing their homes and finding themselves living out of vans, driving around and sleeping in parks and you know, the homeless crisis that we have here in the United States. The way that China handled COVID where you know, the United States lost more than a million people because of the policies we adopted. China, under its policies, still has dramatically lower mortality. And given the size of its population, a tiny fraction of the mortality here in the West. The current drives that are underway in China to deal with the climate crisis, with global warming, China is the world's leader in alternative energy, in research and development for things like solar power, wind power, hydropower. It has made tremendous strides to coming to grips with pollution and other kinds of environmental stresses, many of which were in fact generated by its rapid economic development. But they've understood that. They are coming to grips with that. They're taking necessary measures. And again, I certainly, I concur entirely with what you said. We're not, it's not that China is perfect or a worker's paradise or something like that. It's a country that's still very much a work in progress. But it is one where the priorities certainly appear to be, actually, for improving the lives of its people improving the standards of living. And indeed, not just for the Chinese people, it's not just a sort of isolated nationalist environment, but extending those opportunities, extending aid and assistance and serving in many ways as a model and an inspiration for people in many other countries. It's not imposing itself on those countries, but it provides both a kind of a model for emulation or adaptation and often very direct material assistance through things like the Belt and Road Initiative. So, yeah, there's this tremendous cognitive gulf between the way that China is talked about and presented in everything from think tanks and universities to popular media to political rhetoric and the truth, the reality which is not, as I say, it's not a perfect, unblemished reality. China has its own problems, its own challenges, and we need to recognize and you know accept those and cope with those. But the gulf of truth, the gulf of reality is just so significant that you know, I'm glad that we do these programs and we've got these publications coming out and obviously things will continue to pursue going forward. It's quite an uphill battle, but it's one which, like the reemergence of socialism on the American political agenda, is one which, with persistence and outreach, I hope that we can have some effect. 
All right, we're going to leave it right there. Dr. Ken Hammond, thank you so much. Always glad to be here, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.